In Drink the Wild Air, we're going to be talking to people who, in different ways, explore the limits of what might be possible. Scientists, explorers, artists and thinkers who ask questions that reframe our reality. People, in short, who are different from most of us. Never happier than when, as Lewis Carroll might have put it, dreaming up six impossible things before breakfast. Yet while they are exceptional, they also remind us of the adventure inside all of us, of the thrill of those moments when we look at the world around us and realise it is infinitely remarkable. I do think um, the human is very good at adapting. You know, there's that, there's that research about um, amputees and, and lottery winners and after three years, levels of happiness are the same. Lottery winners, often obviously happiness spikes and people who get amputations, their happiness decreases. But over three years, their levels of happiness start to flatten out again to something that would be more associated with their personality anyway. For Harry Parker, everything changed in what he describes as the goat shit laced dirt of a small patch of irrigated desert under the unforgiving heat of 21st century war. He was serving as a British soldier in Afghanistan when he stepped on an explosive device which left him without his legs and almost killed him outright. In his most recent book, Hybrid Humans, he looks at what it's like to live on what he describes as the frontier of human existence, a place in which technology doesn't just support, but actively extends the possibilities of everyday life. Being an amputee in the 21st century doesn't make me an outlier, he writes, we are all hybrid. Whether it's injury, disease or simply ageing that makes us look to technology, the possibilities to merge human and machine are greater than ever before. I'm Rachel Halliburton and for this interview I'm meeting Harry Parker at the Savoy Hotel, which has agreed for us to record the podcast here as part of its great tradition of hosting writers including H.G. Wells, George Bernard Shaw and Faye Weldon. Today we're going to look at everything from £70,000 knees to the very nature of being human itself. In your book, you argued that to an extent we are all hybrids, that whether it's a phone or a car or, say, contact lenses, external technologies can feel so essential to our everyday life that they become absorbed into who we are. You explain how the adult human brain is much more malleable than we once thought, um, how it allows us to remould the idea of who and what we are physically, and how this presents genuinely exciting possibilities for how we can be changed or enhanced by technology. What are your earliest memories of being gripped by the idea of how technology impacts on what it is to be human? I think when I was when I was injured and I became reliant on these prosthetics, that's when I sort of a lot of what you're talking about. I think really it becomes into sort of real stark relief um, because you you're suddenly so dependent on it. Thinking back uh, to when I was younger, I think it was very much about sort of visual things around you know, the way that we can convert, you know, animations and things like that. And I think when I was, you know, in the early 2000s, there was the sort of Pixar was was getting going and those sorts of things. And I, and, and the way that you can digitally make imagery and storytell through technology. I think that was somewhere, something that I can really remember as being, you know, that sort of cultural technology um, was very interesting for me, I think. And in terms of Physical. I, thinking right back, I was probably one of those kids who loved a bow and arrow. And it's really about what makes us humans and what sets us apart from animals. And this idea that we can extend ourselves into tools, and you know that we, there are some animals that can do certain things. You know, there's clever, very clever crows out there, I think, uh, and and obviously monkeys. But there's things that become cultural objects for us, uh, and 
also that ability to uh, yeah extend our ourselves into say a hammer or into a jcb digger that's um i don't know what age we learn that i mean that's probably something that people have researched um and there's probably some sort of threshold where we we start to understand that and become it becomes very natural and i think you know as someone who's very dependent on technology for a disability that's you know really powerful it's almost 14 years now since you stepped onto an improvised explosive device in Afghanistan and lost your left leg below the knee and your right leg halfway down the thigh. You write that, Now, if I was offered the chance to rewind, to never have stepped on a bomb, not only would I refuse, I'd actually be terrified of losing this new part of my life. It would be to change my identity, to erase all those experiences, both good and bad, that make me who I am. This seems to me to be a really important aspect of who you are. Your sense that while... What happened was both traumatic and dramatic for you. For all of us, reality is constantly shifting and that both accepting and adapting to that is intrinsic to surviving. God, there's, yeah, there's, there's so much in that. Um, in terms of there's the sort of acceptance and the way that we think about what happens to us in our lives um, is one part. And, you know, there's a lot of research about things like post-traumatic growth versus post-traumatic post-traumatic stress disorder and the things that happen the sort of the very normal way that people recover from big trauma uh, and then and then I think there's there's something more about sort of who we are as people and the backgrounds we have and I'm very conscious how lucky I am with the family I've had my education um, you know all the life chances I've had as a white man in a western society which meant that when I was injured I had every opportunity to recover and make it into something that's positive and you can probably do that anyway without those without those sort of uh, advantages but I do think um, the human is very good at adapting you know there's that there's that research about um, it's amputees and, and lottery winners and after three years levels of happiness are the same lottery winners often obviously happiness spikes and people who get amputations uh, their their happiness decreases but over three years their levels of happiness start to sort of flatten out again to something that would be more associated with their personality anyway so I think there's something in that as well that we we adapt and we overcome but I think there's there's something around technologies now that can really help us do that and do it quicker and maybe in a more fulfilled way Technology was there from the start after the accident. Um, You also write quite starkly that if you had been injured even a year before, you wouldn't have survived. All the various practices, techniques and technologies would not have been in place. You also make a comparison with injured soldiers in World War I who could wait for days in flooded shell holes before the stretcher took them back to the field station. The speed with which trauma is dealt with is, of course, crucial and the way that society is mechanised is intrinsic to that. You talk particularly powerful about the helicopter as a game changer, about how it annihilates time and space. It's it's almost the thing that's changed the world more than anything. You know, the globalised world over the last hundred hundred or so years, and I think in t- in terms of um, the the previous question and, and you know the, that that sort of feeling of hope and this being something that is positive, you know the the those fractions of or those those margins of that you know one year earlier or where I was in the world. Um, and there's a bit of luck thrown in there as well, mean that, you know, that also gives me that sort of sense that I was very lucky and that I can be hopeful. But I, I think, you know, 
the helicopter was so important in, in Afghanistan where I was injured. The fact that when I was injured, I was very lucky in the fact that one was flying over anyway. It was off to pick someone up and they sort of looked down and thought, oh, that looks, looks like something is going on. And it was an American helicopter that was in a different area to where it should have been and it landed and then they, they could put me straight onto the helicopter and got me back to Camp Bastion, which was the best trauma hospital in the whole world at the time. You know, everything you could possibly want for a trauma casualty was there, from the scanners, the, the bloods, every single um, piece of equipment and technology, but more importantly, all the people. You know, and all of them were on call and lived in a sort of a prefabbed uh, block of um, rooms 100 metres from where they were doing doing surgery. So from the point of injury to being uh, to being in, in, a, in a surgical environment was 18 minutes. And even if I'd been, you know, I write in the book, if I'm walking around London and I'd been blown up just outside St Thomas's, which is just over the river from here, I think my chances of survival would have been less just because of all those things being in place. And we'd also learned a huge amount about things like bloods and inflammation and, and how far forward you should get those things. And one of the, the big technologies that changed was the idea that you put a trauma bay on the back of a helicopter and you fly the doctors and the trauma medicine and the technology right to the point of injury and I think over the last well over 100 years now but since the first world war that's what's really changed it's this idea of speed of getting the the combatant back. In a chapter that you call Metal Ghosts you write about going to visit Blythe House in West Kensington uh, which was then where three museums including the Science Museum stored exhibits that weren't on display you describe the iron lungs that were used to support people who found it difficult to breathe on their own because of polio. But it was your description of something else at the end of the chapter that really caught me. It's a copy of a Roman artificial leg made of bronze and wood, made after the original was destroyed in 1941 during the Blitz. Can you read the passage where you describe the images it sparked? I see the burnished bronze leg glinting beneath a toga, walking along a street 2,300 years ago. Surely an unusual sight, the Roman equivalent of my microprocessor knee. I have a sudden confusion of imagery, the leg being made in a foundry of a hot Roman market town, a soldier who walks after injury in a war of swords and shields, the leg buried with him, surviving as he decays, dug up to become a wonder of antiquity, an artefact of display cases and academic papers, and then destroyed in another war of planes and bombs. An epilogue flickers, almost too hard to conjure, my own prosthetic knee lying on a museum shelf 2,000 years in the future, my body long dust, this technology being the last trace of me. You talk about how you see yourself as both flesh and bone wetware and prosthetic hardware, and this is just one way in which it's not always clear which aspect is the most reliable. Which of the medical technologies that you've been fitted with has seemed most to extend the potential of who you are? I'm going to say something a bit sort of um, maybe unexpected, but I sometimes I think about my contact lenses as being more important in a way than my prosthetic legs, and I've had them for for far longer than my than my prosthetics, and it's it's really about sort of well, the visual world is so important to me, and they you know they're they're a tiny piece of technology that I put in my eye and and allow me to see more clearly, and I think they're something that we've all you know a lot we all. Or a lot of us know about or have had some experience of 
but they have lots of the same problems. They often hurt a bit, they're a bit of a pain. If you wear them for too long, they're not very good for your eyes. So in that sense, they're quite a good analog for my, for my legs, if that makes sense. The piece of technology that really changes me, and I think probably changes most of us, is my, is my smartphone. And why it's important to me is that I use it in a way that makes my life much more easy. We all do this, but it's things like being able to put into Google Maps how far away I need to walk. So I can make decisions like that and where the nearest tube is in a way that we're all doing. But for me, it's extremely important because all those things are effort, time. They all have a, have a cost in my, on me as a human. So, of course, my legs are very important. But I think they're sort of things that if I really think about, if you took those away from me, my life would be really difficult. And the sort of anxiety around it would be, would be almost as much as if you took my prosthetic legs away. Can we talk um, not just about your prosthetic legs, but specifically about your knee, um, the Genium X3, which is the latest generation of microprocessor knees um, produced by the German company Otterbock. You say it really depends on how you define artificial intelligence. But if this knee is a device that perceives its environment and takes actions that maximise its chance of successfully achieving its goals, then perhaps I do have another brain down in my knee and I should add it to the list of stuff that makes up who I am. A knee with a brain. It sounds strange, but it's also a rather beautiful way of capturing the complexity of precisely what any joint, especially the knee, has to do. This is part of what you become, isn't it? There's an aspect of your life that is much richer because you have a genuinely heightened consciousness of what we all too often take for granted. I think what's important about it is how it makes me, what it does for me as a person. And you know, going down some stairs or even walking over a curb or a piece of uneven ground. With a mechanical knee, which I think is what is the sort of um, trade-off we're talking about here. So a mechanical knee is a sort of more traditional prosthetic knee, which doesn't have any technology in it other than the, you know, the, the swinging joint and, and maybe a, a piston, which is a controlled with valves. If I was to use the mechanical knee, and I've used one before, I have to think far more about what I'm doing, about walking in a way that's that's less natural. Because you don't have to think too much about going downstairs. You can probably have a conversation with someone else. You can carry a bag of shopping. But with a mechanical knee, I, I, was, I found that I had to think much more clearly about it, and I wouldn't be able to have a conversation. And if I was carrying a piece of, you know, a bag, I'd have to go down sideways. So, so the, the, the microprocessor knee is doing some of the work for me. It's freeing up my cognitive load, if you like, to act in a way that's far more human. And I think that's where the sort of those technologies which are moving towards sort of artificial intelligence, if you like, become quite powerful for people with disabilities, but anyone really. What's interesting about having a very high-tech piece of technology like this leg and that's where a lot of the investment is put. It's the bit that people see. It's the bit that the kids at my, you know, my children's school go, oh, cool, you're a robot. What they don't see is actually the bit that's really a challenge, I think, for both developers and people making prosthetic legs is the interface between human and, and these, this piece of technology. And although material science has moved on and there's much better ways of connecting it, the, the sort of baseline technologies, the way of doing it, haven't really changed for a few hundred years. And that's where the real sort of friction between being, I suppose, being hybrid is. There's a point when you talk about the Cybathlon in Karlsruhe, 
a mashup, as you say, of Formula One, the Paralympics and a series of elaborate party games. Uh, but it's an important arena where med tech companies and university bioengineering departments can compete against each other. Can you describe what it's like to our listeners? So I went to Karlsruhe to, the, um, to a huge uh, trade show for technology for rehab, everything from uh, walking sticks all the way through to the most high-tech exoskeletons. And it was incredible going there because you just saw the breadth of the the equipment that was sort of on sale. And you also, I think as someone who's quite reliant on it, saw it as a sort of a marketplace. And that's quite a strange feeling, the thought that all these legs and prosthetics, even the, the cars that had adaptions, there was a big marketplace and you were the, essentially the end user and people were trying to sell you, sell you this equipment. But in the corner of this huge, massive conference centre, there was a sort of... And the only way I can really describe it was a sort of egg and spoon race type assault course where with two tracks, um, all sort of green with white lines and above a huge, a huge screen which had cameras of what was going on and amazing audio visual stuff so that you could hear what the commentator was saying. And then you'd have two what they call pilots who were disabled people. And they would go down the, the, the assault course and for the lower limb prosthetics they'd have to sort of carry a plate of apples and stand up and sit down and then go walk across a cambered area and then upstairs and downstairs and move a load of boxes over some stairs and then open a door, all sorts of things. And they were sort of racing. And then there was the upper limb prosthetic race where the people had to open doors with their prosthetic or do up a shirt, take their shirt off. They had to put a credit card in a slot. There was all sorts of different things. And then there was a sort of audience watching, you know, eating eating their sandwiches and having a beer. And I think there's there's lots that there that I think is really interesting. Certainly the fact that these prosthetic companies would be willing to put themselves out there and, and show how good or bad they were. I think what's good about the, the Cybathlon is the fact that it gives bioengineering departments at sort of universities a place and a way of sort of testing out their ideas in quite a public way. And and the other thing that's really important, it connects the end user with the people making the technologies um, in a way that, that I think is really helpful. Because often you'll have people making some new bit of equipment because they can, and never really in a proper way connecting with the end user. One example is that this this leg, had I was given a new program for it by the developers to test out as sort of part of a trial and it was meant to make it much easier for me to use and essentially it was a change to the algorithm which meant that I had to do less and it was doing more but what what I felt immediately that I wasn't in control of the leg and most of the other people who were testing it out as well felt the same thing although I'm sure if we'd kept going with it it may have made our lives easier in the long run it just took too much control away from us and I think in the sort of next phase of technologies when the human user stops being the sort of highest control entity so the person in charge basically that there's a sort of watershed moment where you've got to say well do we want that you know and, and that in a very small way this new tiny little bit of software that was put into my leg I sort of experienced that actually I didn't want I didn't want it to be any better I wanted to be the one deciding when it was stepping over something um, so yeah, the Cybathlon is great for that, sort of making sure that the end user, the people who are actually using it, are the people sort of working with scientists who aren't sort of going off on mad tracks just because there's funding there or they, they feel they should. A theme that recurs during Hybrid Humans is the theme of osseointegration. 
when I was emailing you before the interview, I was explaining that I remember this term from the 80s when my mother was a nurse on an amputee's unit. And a consultant there was talking about this exciting new technique. Essentially, it means that the bone from what's remaining of the limb is directly connected to a titanium implant, which is then connected to the prosthetic. It's also called direct skeletal fixation. And the titanium implant means that amputees can get sensations through their prosthetic limb that, apart from anything else, helps them psychologically connect with their new body. Do you want to talk about this? So osseointegration, as you described, is you have to have a surgical procedure where an orthopaedic surgeon will drill a hole through your femur and then put in a titanium implant, which they'll hammer in with a, with a hammer, and then a plastic surgeon will, will make a nice, neat interface between that titanium implant and your body. And then you attach the £70,000 prosthetic to it, and you're connected to it, I mean, directly. It's directly connected to your skeleton. And everyone who I've spoken to who's had it just talks about how immediate, how, how solid, how sort of secure they feel on their, on their prosthetics. And there are people who are in wheelchairs who are now, after 10 years, you know, which in most sort of rehabilitative journeys, if you're not sort of better after a few years, it's very unlikely that you're suddenly going to get better. So to see people who are suddenly up and about and walking most of the time is is pretty amazing. But at the same time, there's real costs and risks with it because as soon as you put a hole in the body, you um, you risk infection going between the uh, skin and, and the titanium implant. There's always a bit of a hole there. And so it really, I think that risk of infection is is the trade-off. That's the cost. So that's where the sort of the boundaries between wetware and hardware, I think, are being pushed most radically, I suppose. And, and actually, it's been really successful. And it's, it's a technology which is being pushed by different people. And the outcomes have been very good for, for lots of people. But when it goes wrong, I mean, it can go wrong in, in, quite a, in quite a bad way. I think sort of when you look to the sort of future and some of the people who are, I would say, well, there's a sort of group of almost what I would call performative artists, body hackers, biohackers, who are looking at ways of attaching technologies to their body in order to enhance themselves. And I still think that it is slightly performative. The, the sort of technologies that they're using, the things they're doing, I would say, don't necessarily make their their, their lives that easy. In Sweden, there's a whole group of people who've got um, near-field communication chips, so just the sort of chip that you might have in your credit card put under their skin and it allows them to use the tube or, or, or the, the, the transport system or get into their house using this this technology. But there are some people in America who are sort of pushed this down a sort of more uh, sort of radical way and they, they've got devices that they put under their skin at home i mean there's one thing which is which is a sort of series of lights that they put under their skin which they can then go to a club and it'll light up there's another one called the north star where as you move around it it buzzes at you when you go through north so you're sort of always orientated your book is on one level a documenting of different medical technologies but on another level it's very much about what it means to be human and the degree to which that is connected to our bodies um which makes it a profound questioning of what identity is, because all of our bodies are always changing. Do you still feel that you're in a process of reinvention? Gosh, such a huge question. I and I, you know, I think we all are probably. Um, I think what you know, you become more aware of it when when your body is compromised in some way, and that can be anything. You know, aging, disease, um, and I suppose what happened to me was quite a sort of 
visible and stark way of um, shifting my physical body. And I think it did have an impact on my identity. There's lots of reasons for that. You know, I, I often think about the sort of origin of my disability and people get disabled or disease in different ways some people are born with with disability but to have an origin story where you're blown up is I think it does have an impact on the way you view your disability and the way you're going about life but but also I, I just think as I've as I've had children and my disability has changed the way I think about them and my relation to, to them and also my relationship to society I think um, I'm far more um I'm far more aware of where I fit because I'm far more dependent on things like the NHS and the medical technology companies that have created my my limb. And I, I think a good example of that is things like the pandemic, where those very first sort of months of the pandemic have felt very uncertain around, you know, would I be able to get my leg fixed if it if it broke? And you suddenly realise that actually you are dependent on society and 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 institutions around that some people aren't so so much i mean we all are in different ways but i felt i felt that very acutely and and i think just in terms of you know our identities are always shifting and i think are always quite quite fluid um and and that that definitely felt the case and i think people who have disabilities yeah do feel that quite acutely your father, Sinek Parker, was a senior military commander in Afghanistan when you had your accident and later that year took over as deputy NATO commander there. How has your relationship changed over the last 14 years? Yeah, I, I mean, it's sort of, I think it's very easy to look in at other families and, and assume that there might be some sort of huge change around around things like this. And I think when when you look at something like a military career or profession, you know, he, he was in the army until all the way through from when I was born. So it's very normal. And, uh, you know, I, he, he wasn't like the sort of generals out of Blackadder. You know, he was my dad and it was, he was very normal and very loving. And I think people often think, you know, what was it like? And and, all that. and of course, it was just normal for us. And and he, we have a relationship of father and son, not, not general and you know, soldier. It's not. It's just not like that. Um, but but of course, you know, when I'm sure anyone whose children and now I've got children, I sort of start to understand that if your child gets badly hurt or injured or is in any, any way unhappy, that has a real impact on you as a person. So I think I I have a, you know, he then deployed to Afghanistan after I was injured, and I think, you know, that must have been, you know. I, I I sort of see it in a different way, but actually it never it never felt different or weird or any way sort of unusual. He was just sort of loving Dad through all of it. And as you, you have said, you you have your own children, and they've always known you like this. It's how they've learned to love. It's how they've learned what the body can be. Um, what have you learned from them? God, I mean, <laughs> probably what everyone who learns from having children, um, how not to sleep. Uh, what else have I learned from them? I mean, I think it's, you know, they, they, there's, there's sort of, when I take my prosthetics off, it's pretty ugly. There's scars everywhere. They're, they're, you know, and it is also very different to what a normal body looks like, but for them, it's completely normal. And, um, I think that sort of unconditional love is something that when you're somebody with some sort of disability that that's something you don't find everywhere so having that from my children is is you know incredible and more interesting is as they grow up how they react to things like their friends or people at school sort of 
pointing or looking or talking about it that's quite interesting to see and they'll sort of you know my son he now he's yeah he stood on a bomb and he'll you know scoot off or my daughter will sort of talk to her friends and things and I you know I think it's just it's it's normal for them but I do think they 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 are starting to have more of an awareness of it and also they start to understand that I can't run or play football like other dads can so I think you know it's it's again it's it's completely normal and they're not normal at the same time. We're at the point in Drink the Wild Air where we ask for a book, a film and a piece of music that have inspired you. Right, so I think a book, um, I think Lord of the Flies is a book that I've returned to quite a few times, William Golding. Have I got that? Yeah, that sounds right. Um, A piece of music that I love, that I listen to and I return to a lot is by Michael Nyman and it's uh it's called it's music of Grand Vitesse which is about the uh TGV it was commissioned for that by I if you do you know that you do know um and then what was the last one the film yeah okay film it's just Eddie I mean the films that I all those 80s films like Karate Kid and Short Circuit and things like that are those those are the films that I think you know, I don't watch them anymore, but they're, I can still see them. You know, I can still see the imagery from them. And they're probably terrible now. But I think there's something about that when those things, those mu- the music and films that you watch when you're sort of in your teens have a sort of interesting impact on you. And they're probably, I should probably return to it. I love the part of the book about the Alternative Limb Project, about Sophie who creates limbs with whatever her client wants, whether it's a model railway running through it or an arm with a snake emerging through the wrist I think was one of them if you were going for something really alternative what would it be I mean I know Sophie quite well now and we've often talked about you know doing a project together and um, I've never felt that my legs are the way they I've never and I I do worry about what they look like you know in that sense I am quite vain but I'm I've never tried to make them look human again. And lots of people who lose limbs do. You know, they want they want cosmetic legs. And Sophie, that's where she sort of... That's where she cut her teeth, was making very hyper-realistic cosmetic uh, limbs, which you made out of um, silicone with, you know, real hairs, so that walking down the street, you wouldn't even notice the difference. And for some people, that's very important to get a sense of themselves back and their identity. And it slightly goes back to that idea of sort of origin and where we get we where we get our disabilities from. But for me, actually, there's something about the uncanny, which is this whole idea that as you get closer and closer to something being real, it can look even more uncanny and weird. And and we think, is that alive or is that not? And so for me, that it feels a bit like that. But also, there's something about sort of truth to materials you know be be what you are and so having something that's sort of as efficient as possible and as soon as you start chucking stuff on a prosthetic leg to make it look good it gets heavier it's more likely to break and actually what's most important to me is lightweight function those are the things that really are, are the are crucial to the way that I navigate the world so to I even have a cosmetic leg even wear trousers I wear shorts all the time those are things that the reason I don't wear trousers is because they start to slightly inhibit what you know what how these work and the other part of it is about communication really 
I think, you know, if I had a cosmetic leg and people couldn't see it, then they potentially wouldn't give me as much time and space on the underground or, you know, walking across, you know, a platform on a station. So, so for me, that's very personal, but it, I, I sort of don't want it to be anything that it's not. You say that your prosthetics are not human, but without them, you feel less alive. I mean, you've explained that to a degree, but could you just comment on that? Yeah, I think it's, um, there's a sort of bit of a, uh, there's sort of a contradiction in this because, you know, the, 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 the prosthetics cause me pain and discomfort. And I think pain and discomfort is quite dehumanising. Um, and, but at the same time, they allow me to navigate the world and the people around me in a way that makes me feel more human. And um, one, one way of describing this is to say, you know, when I'm in a wheelchair, being sort of at that level and interacting with people from a wheelchair was more uncomfortable than the pain of being on my prosthetics. Now, I'm, I'm so lucky I was able to get up on prosthetics and there are people who, who can't and have to be in a wheelchair. So, so I understand I'm lucky in that. But, but I, I, I got to the point where I wouldn't leave the house in a wheelchair because I was sort of embarrassed by it. So, and I'm sort of over that now. But I think that that's that. There's something about for me the way that my legs have allowed me to feel human again. Um, but at the same time, on bad days, you know, and that's the other thing. You know, we always want one answer. It's sort of it's in flux. On bad days, when it's very painful, it can be the opposite. You know, it can be, it can be like being in a prison, and you all you want to do is take them off. So. So yeah, I think on balance, obviously they, they are sort of they are something that allows me to be part of society and move around. And of course, there are other ways of doing that, like a wheelchair. But it's not always the same. It's always in flux. Harry Parker, thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> <laughs>